Salep Maxidri Droyatrit, Pradaroisak lep kulklačoji kutezor poksir kanstelep kujduk sek šyri kuten bovinten. Welcome to Con Larry, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. Uh, with us in England is the lovely Bianca Richards. Yay! Hello. And in the great state of Wisconsin, we have William Annis. Hello. I couldn't think of an adjective. That's enough. okay. Indescribable. <laughs> I can describe him. Quite well. He's. But you he's, couldn't think of an adjective. Well. You failed to describe him. I can. I, that's that's. We can <laughs> we can argue about whether adjectives really are words that describe things, or whether that is the uh, that is the lies to children version. But don't um, be silly. Adjectives are what goes in the adjective slot. I can. I can I, I'm sure I can. Um, I can describe William. He is. Uh, <laughs> a a middle-aged balding gay man so the most salient features of my personality absolutely <laughs> <laughs> sorry i saw his google yeah. plus picture yeah no <laughs> it's all true oh <laughs> uh, sorry william That's on okay. that awkward note why don't we jump into our topic now our topic today William was the one who actually suggested we do these. And we are going to do a practicum, which is, our practicum is getting rid of case marking. Now, William, I want you to explain this to people so that um, everybody's clear on what we're doing. What is a practicum in the first place? Okay, so I'm not entirely sure practicum is the best word for this, but I can't think of a better one. And all these are is discussions about what happens when you make a design decision, especially ones that lead to a bunch of other consequences. Mm -hmm. um, so up till now, a lot of our episodes have been about a particular feature of language, evidentials, demonstratives, um, all that sort of stuff, voice. And what a practicum is, is when you say, let's choose this feature or this collection of features for the language and let's think about all of the implications that has through the design of the rest of the language. So today we're going to think about getting rid of case marking since lots and lots of conlangers love to have cases and sometimes lots and lots of cases. Um, yeah, so think. today we're going to go with this thought of you've decided to get rid of cases. What all does that imply? What other things do you need to think about as a consequence of that? It is kind of odd that so many conlangers go with lots of cases, even though most uh, conlangers are English speakers, and English has very, very anemic case. I don't think it's odd at all. I think it's because, you know, English doesn't have many cases. When you find out about them, you obviously are curious and want to use them. Yeah, uh -huh. I think that's right. And I think there's also kind of the English fear. We don't want to use word order because it'll be like English. <laughs> well, no, I think I think that's right. So, why don't we start getting into the mechanics of it? So, we've decided that we have no cases at all, or at least well, no no case marking on the nouns. Right. So, basically, the main thing is that you need cases for is to describe a noun phrase's role in a sentence. So how else do you get around doing that thing? Right. So there's, it's important to distinguish what I'm going to call core cases and, and non-core or non-semantic cases. So the semantic ones are subject, agent, patient, hmm. nominative, accusative, direct object, or um, ergative and absolutive. These are the saying, you know, who's doing what? To whom? And then you have other cases that indicate things like location, um, possession, um, that sort of stuff. Uh, aren't those called obliques? 
Sometimes. I, I, the problem is oblique can be used to, in different, to mean different things in different languages. Oh, okay. But we can call them core cases versus obliques. And what we're most interested in is getting rid of those core cases. You're not going to have your nominative accusative. Um, you're not going to have your ergative or absolutive. Now, once you've made that decision, that does not mean you're going to have no cases. It turns out it's not terribly uncommon to have no core cases, but to still have cases, you know, like have a locative or something like that. Mm-hmm. So we can cheat. We can say we're not going to have subjects and, and we're not going to have nominatives and accusatives, but I'm still going to have a locative and an instrumental. God knows why. That could, <laughs> that could actually make sense if you want to have no, you don't want to have core cases, but you still want to uh, avoid ad positions. Sure. Because, you know, that way um, you still have a way of differentiating those, even though word order isn't necessarily the best way to differentiate them. Right, right. And it turns out it's not terribly unusual. I mean, it's not the most popular, the most common situation, but it's not uncommon for a language to have case, but only for things like for the obliques. Mm-hmm. Um. And, and one last thing I want to mention before we go on to the real issue is you can cheat. A small number of languages do have direct object prepositions. So you can just turn everything into a preposition or a postposition. Yeah, that makes um, sense. At which point, when you, when you have situations like that, I'm like, I start to wonder on what the difference is between a case and a ad position at that point. But um, the two I'll mention is um, Hebrew has a preposition which is used for definite direct objects. Um, and this sort of preoccupation with definite direct objects occurs in other languages. Um, Persian, I assume it's not an area effect, also marks definite direct objects but does not, mark, uh, does not otherwise mark direct objects. Mm-hmm. So that's another little twist you can get where you kind of don't have case marking, but it sneaks in a little bit. So, no cases at all, what are you going to do? There are multiple Order. possibilities. One nice one is polypersonal agreement. Aha. Uh-huh. This one is becoming very popular. Yeah. <coughs> well, is it, is, why? I think because people enjoy their Native American languages that have it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what we mean by this is your verb is not just marked for the subject, but it is also marked for the direct object. Yeah. That so seems, that a what? phrase like I see him is one big word. That. That seems like a uh, a very good sort of middle ground. As long as you have like either have the 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 inverse marking like tua, or if you have um, a subject slot and an object slot, then you can do make it unambiguous and make it work. Right. I had a lot of fun doing that with one of my languages. So I did the polypersonal marking and it had the kind of the light slash auxiliary verb thing that Basque has going on. And then just because I thought, you know, this isn't weird enough or difficult enough for me because I'm a horrible person, I decided that I would have the inverse marked by um, mutation in the stem root. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> the folly. The folly. What kind of mutation? Metathesis. Metathesis. Wow. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Metathesis. So someone with a speech impediment is going to go around all the time saying things that are confusing. Ish. Because Ish. there's only seven or so fully conjugating verbs. Mm-hmm. And just because I know the one more common one to have has... H as part of the stem, and that tends to, in certain contexts, get killed. So it it's derived, but it doesn't look derived. So a lot of the ones, it's not that simple. But some of them, the more the less common ones, like with oh, I don't remember, like the fact that you have it on that you only have a few uh, fully conjugatable verbs that act as auxiliaries and carry all that information makes that a lot more plausible because you can have weird things happen to a few words that wouldn't 
that are less likely to happen on the entire class of verbs. Well, it's the thing you see with like, um, uh, what are they called? Like the strong versus weak verbs, where the strong verbs tend to be your more common ones that you're going to use more, and then you get the regular patterns with the less common ones. Yeah. Right. Well, but where were we? <laughs> yeah, let's move away from the the peculiarities of your language and and back to getting rid of case. So we were talking about polypersonal agreement. So that doesn't solve all of your problems. Yeah. So if you've got no gender, then three singular sees three singular is still ambiguous if you give, you know, the man sees the woman and the woman sees the man is potentially ambiguous if you allow free word order. Mm-hmm. So this is where having a rich gender system makes things more flexible. That's the great thing about Swahili, which has a rich gender system and polypersonal agreement which most of the time gives you the possibility of a pretty flexible word order, but it's still perfectly clear because your verb is marking who's the subject, who's the direct object. Yeah. And the genders are very often going to be different. Again, if you have a man talking to another man, then things potentially get confusing again. But Yeah. Another thing is that if you don't want to put gender and you still want this polypersonal agreement, you could do the proximate obviate. Sure. Um, Or... You could have the, what I did, the agreement on the verb, it's not just three third person, it's third person animate, third person inanimate, and a lot of times it just ends up the animates doing something to the inanimate, and that sounds creepy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that's... gender-ish. That's the most... Well, when you have that inverse marking, you can can take advantage of animacy hierarchies to do stuff. So, but you still, just as with the um, gender marking, you still end up occasionally with the problem of you have two things of the same animacy. True. Right, right. Um, It's because certainly people do plenty of things to people. Um, uh, In the case of Nawat, which is on my brain at the moment, um, if you have an overt direct object it must always follow the verb immediately. Ah, uh, okay. Right, so you've got polypersonal agreement, which gives you a good deal of flexibility most of the time, but when there's a potential for confusion, you know exactly where the overt direct object's going to be. So a little bit of word order um, there, but that's really the... It's, it's, it's only used to disambiguate mm-hmm. situations. So that's one way to give yourself certain flexibility in word order, but still have no case marking. Another possibility, are we, are we done with polypersonal, do we think? Yeah, I think that's, that's good enough. Let's move on to another technique you can use. So the technique that Mohawk uses is once you've introduced an overt thing, a new discourse topic, you either incorporate it or you incorporate a class marker for it whenever you talk about the direct object. So it's not quite polypersonal agreement, <laughs> but a definite direct object becomes incorporated or can be incorporated into the verb. Interesting. Uh... So that's how you indicate the in Mohawk or Oneida. You slam the noun into the verb. Now, it turns out high animacy nouns resist incorporation, so you still have to work with it. But, you know, this is another possibility you could work with. Okay. So, this is a case where I think you you mentioned that in Mohawk, at least, this is very sort of has a res- the restriction in it built in that, uh, what am I saying? Um, it only applies to definites. And animates can resist it. So it's not necessarily a surefire. The thing that... um, uh, It seems to me that it would make sense for... um, For this sort of uh, noun incorporation to only apply to something that has already been mentioned in the discourse. Right, well that's that's what I say. That's what definite means. That means definite means it's... Information that your listener 
knows what it is. Either it has been mentioned specifically or is obvious from the context. Yeah, I mean, you said that before. Okay. I'm just um, saying that I don't think it would be likely to have the direct object always um, incorporated. It would have to be more like the it would be only definite direct objects end up getting incorporated the way that you mentioned Mohawk does. Right. So that kind of limits what you can do. I'm not sure how. Um, typically, when you introduce a new discourse topic, it's brought into the sentence in a particular structure of its own, may or may not be the direct object of a transitive verb. Okay. Um, I mean, it could be, in which case you can still... Uh, name the thing, but a certain amount... So, uh, one thing I should say here is we've been talking about polypersonal agreement and now non-incorporation to take the place of case marking. And in both of these situations, we're talking about languages that are somewhat non-configurational. Uh-huh. If you do non-incorporation or polypersonal agreement and, in addition, have a fixed word order, it doesn't matter. You always know who the subject is. You always know who the direct object is. Right. So, um, in my experience... This style of non-incorporation tends to go along with or tends to happen in languages where polypersonal agreement is also not unlikely. Ah, uh, okay. So that's, that's we, an important um, thing that we should say is that we're naming a bunch of features that we can use to, to mitigate the effect of losing case. Mm-hmm. And really, you should be thinking of all these features and sort of mix and match and see which works, what works good together. These particular first two that we've mentioned do happen to work very well together. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when you're trying to do this, and, and for all the techniques we're working on, the way you're going to test if this is working is write a story about two men or two women getting into a fight or some doing something together where the confusion about who is bound to the pronoun he (laughs) happens. You need a story where you have two things of the same animacy, the same gender, interacting a lot and doing things to each other transitively and intransitively to find out really how well (laughs) your system works. I know Bianca's having fun imagining stories. (laughs) Uh, Sorry. I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to come back to your story idea, because that gives me an idea for something to say at, just as we're ending this topic. But why don't okay, we... but I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a way to test if your features you've chosen actually work. Yeah. Let's, let's actually start keep uh, going down a list. So after and... noun incorporation, you have listed on here word order, but you didn't just say just word order, you are also talking about a whole bunch of ancillary things that go with the the fact that you have fixed word order. Right. So, in the first two examples we've gone through, polypersonal agreement and non-incorporation, you can use word order to do focus. The horrible, horrible E-word, emphasis. Once you've decided on a fixed word order, how do you do those things? And there's a whole and, – and this is such an important thing. Um, we don't even think about it most of the time. We're constantly organizing our words and our conversation to highlight the things we think are important and to um, sort of suppress or lower the importance of things that don't matter as much. Mm-hmm. So if you decide on a very rigid, rigid word order to – make sure you know who's doing what to whom in a transitive verb, then you still have to think about ways to shift focus. Okay, so... And I have a big long list of different ways of of doing this. So, um, I'm looking at your list, but I'm going to think, well, you actually listed this voice. Right, let's let's just go, let's start with simple and move on down. Um, One I didn't put on the list Um, because I don't think about it that much, is what English does is it's entirely intonation. Oh, yes. Um, I saw the man at the store. That is is a very difficult thing to actually sit down and describe, too. Right. You have to Um, 
you have to sort of like give people examples with like bolded words and stuff. Bolding but, or italics or whatever, right. So that's one way. Um, another way is to use focus particles. And these are very common in languages um, with pretty rigid word orders to have a particle either before or after the word, which says this word is being singled out for attention. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do clefting, which is in English is things like, it's the man I saw yesterday. Yes. Or you can say, as for that man, I saw him yesterday. Yeah, that, that's a little bit more unusual. I think in most people in, in fluid speech are going to say, it's the man I saw yesterday. Yeah, or it's, it's, that's, it's, that's, that's not the best example of it. But you It's can, the cake I ate, not the pie. Yes, yes. Right. Um, and this is a very common strategy in fixed word order languages. Um, it is so common that the words that get used in cleft structures over time tend to get smaller and smaller and smaller until they look like focus particles. I, I'm imagining uh, now a future English where it's the becomes is a and becomes a focus particle. Yeah, it becomes a pre-positive focus particle. Yeah. Um, that would be awesome. And so these things we've talked about up to this list so far, focus, clefting structures, clefting reduction... There might be some mood thing if, if, like English, you use a relative clause as part of your clefting. All of these can mix and match together in fun ways where you have both um, intonation changes and a focus particle and a subordinate marked verb for some reason. All of these are possible. Mm-hmm. Once you've decided that clefting is a, a structure you're going to use, it's extremely likely that question words will become part of the clefting party. So, so French, Tagalog, both of these languages, your question words always come first, and everything that comes after is part of the normal clefting structure. Okay, so WH fronting goes with clefting. Yes. That makes sense. I mean, sort if you've got clefting, it ten- then you, you know, it, it tends to get grabbed up and, and, and used for... Because question motion. words are generally the most important word in the question. Right, right. Um, which one of these next should we talk about first? So, the other trick you can use to change focus is have a bunch of different voices. Mm-hmm. You could have inverse voice or passive or anti-passive um, or some combination of those which will allow you to focus either the subject or the direct object. Yeah. And we might want to add into this, you know, you can have inverse, passive, antipassive, or all three. Or you could also, if you also want to go even further with this, you can add in applicatives and stuff. Uh, sure. Applicatives don't solve the problem of how you deal with focus when you have um, a fixed word order. Um, but once you start getting into... If you're going to do noun incorporation or polypersonal agreement, there's a good chance your verbs will also have applicatives. Oh, okay. Which so. actually simply complicate the matter because all an applicative does is says, hey, your verb has a new argument, which is, not, which is now not being marked for role. Uh-huh. Um, so that actually adds complexity to this. <laughs> oh, so applicatives are actually not solving a problem. They're, they're not they're solving creating. a problem. They simply add to or might, if you go with applicatives, they might, they might well, forget that that thought just derailed. But yeah, applicatives make it harder. <laughs> okay, so maybe not go for applicatives unless you want to do that for another reason. So right, right. That, that'll be a, 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 another episode. Right, so you can use an inverse to um, say that you want to focus the direct object. You can use um, a passive to do the same thing. You can use an anti-passive to focus the subject. Um, so that's all fine. If you have gone the route of a VSO language, all of those, or almost all of those, except SVO as an alternate word order, for various things, and this seems like a prime candidate for focusing on the subject. That's That actually... You know what is interesting about that? That you can do the SVO. You can combine that with the different voices to make it right. 
totally, basically, your focus position is before the verb, and if you want to focus the object, you have to make it a passive. Sure, or an inverse or something, yeah. Um, when this this switch from VSO to SVO happens, it might be it might simply be movement, or there might be some additional grammatical dance that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite is Maori, which has a possessed subject but a null possessor. <laughs> so the particle that is used to mark possession, and what's really wonderfully fascinating is apparently Maori has um, a special. It distinguishes possession in the present and the past from possession in the future, um, or conjectural can possession. Can you tell us the the page number in this in this grammar that you gave us where that particular discussion is? Uh, it's somewhere in here. Yeah, it's called actor emphatic sentences. So starting around page twenty-five. Okay. So these simply change the, the there's movement and then there's this funky possession going on now the great thing about the maori situation is that there's at least three things that could be going on here and linguists don't agree because <laughs> it is a funky kind of structure um apart from the the fun of having possessive particles encode tense <laughs> um which is a nice little a, a nice little brain twist um uh, they which I think is interesting and, and maybe other people might want to think about for, for their languages. Um, so people who are interested in that can read the paper. I just bring this up. It's simply an example of your allowing movement for focus might be a simple movement or it might involve additional grammatical dancing. Mm-hmm. So in English, if I'm feeling um, a little... Literary, I can say things like this. I don't understand, mm-hmm. and you know, you you know that I mean <laughs> this is the direct object because of their syntax of the rest. So there doesn't have to be clefting and mood dancing going on there. It can be more straightforward, especially when the semantics of the verb make it clear. Right, inanimate objects don't un- understand people. Yeah, nor do they. They don't even. They, in fact, they're so inert they don't even fail to understand people. So. <laughs> <laughs> so when you, when you do these things try to also keep the, the semantics in mind yes um, having a good idea of how antipathy works is can be a very good tool in any of these techniques yeah I, I think I think animacy is more deeply pervasive in how language works than most of us think like um, when we're talking about uh, focusing things by fronting them and then focusing the object with the passive, if you have an animate subject and an inanimate object, you might not need to use a passive because it will just basically be assumed that that is the object or something. Right, right. And some languages are a little uncomfortable with um, agent direct objects in the first place um, and might, by preference, switch to passive for that situation anyway. Okay. Um, anyway, your idea about uh, writing the story gave me an idea. I'm going to do something that we ha- don't do. I don't know if we did it before at all, but if we ha- did it was like once or twice. I'm going to give you guys some homework. I want. <laughs> I want. I want our listeners, at least somebody out there, to construct just a. You don't have to construct the whole language. Just do a basic, some some basics of the morphosyntax, and get just enough of the language that you can write a story about. Let's let's um, let's say there's a man beating a donkey, and then another man comes and beats a man that's beating a donkey, and. <laughs> You can Sorry. you can make up a, a different story if you want, but that's 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 the one that popped in my head right then. So, sort of do what we were doing. Think about what techniques you want to, what features you want to use to mitigate the the loss of case, and then write a story that demonstrates how everything is working and how ambiguities are fixed. Dealt with, right? So. 
that story presents interesting problems apart from losing case. Um, especially if you decide not to have um, gender or obviation. Even if you have gender, it's, it's two men, then it's, it's the same problem. It's keeping track of who, who is who. You might need to have a, a switch reference system or, or something like that. Yeah. To keep track of who's there's the, the whole um, co-referentiality issue comes up as well. So, if you can think of another story that does a good job of demonstrating the issues of getting rid of case, then that would be interesting too. Yeah, and just like do that and email us, and we might uh, talk about one or two of the people who uh, sent us in and stuff on that. I think that would be a fun thing to yeah, see how different people um, end up tackling this. Um, since I've already given the homework assignment, is there any other stuff that we can really say about this? Um, nothing came to mind. Um, I'm, they're probably, you know, we're going to get mail because there's something important we missed. But th- these, I thought, were the big deals, the big issues. Yeah. Um, on, on how to... different ways of dealing with still wanting to do focus, but having no case marking. Yeah. Well, if you decide to take up my challenge, then uh, I'm going to say you don't have to restrict yourself to stuff we mentioned in the episode either. If you find something in your own research that you think you can make it work, then by all means do it, because I want to see what different people do, how different people handle losing case. Yep. Okay, so with that said... And you get two weeks because that's the space between when we record and when the show is an episode appears. <laughs> yes, well... It's going to be like three weeks before we start seeing mail about it, but okay. <laughs> I will have forgotten in three weeks. <laughs> but I'll be excited when I get to see it. I'll try I, to, might, I'll, I'm, I might try this myself just to see to see what comes up. But anyway. Yeah, you guys do it. I might but, try and do yeah. it from my verb hell language. Um Anyway. I might try we're doing some of this. Um, I've been meaning to get to working on another uh, a language family, but I haven't done much with it. Um, anyway, why don't we go ahead and move on to our featured conline, which is Chitana. 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 Yes. And so Chitana has an interesting history. It was created by Gary J. Shannon. And um, basically he at least started this during NaNoWriMo. And his goal was um, to do, just like NaNoWriMo is writing a novel in a month, he was going to create a conlang for a month. And he specifically said that he he was going to use um, a criterion of he has to translate this particular passage into the conlang at the end, by the end of November. He took... He took chapter nine from The Land That Time Forgot by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Yeah, which is about 220... It's about 2,200 words. So, very substantial text to translate. And so... The uh, biggest problem that I see trying to review this language is the fact that he doesn't, didn't put up any... He didn't really put up a grammar, but because he was doing it with this translation thing, he just has glosses of the translation. So we have to kind of look at the glosses and figure out what... kind of deconstruct how the language works from that. Yeah, right. I mean, because this is, I guess... I'd call it more of a bottom-up language rather than a top-down language where you set the structures and you fill in the things. This is more, he's just filling everything and discerning the structure from it. It appears to have, (coughs) yeah, it appears to have animate and inanimate. I, I did enjoy reading this one part where he has some sort of irregular copula. So I think it started with a word order that was something like be careless then, hunter. Be angry now, bear, for, you know, the bear's not angry. But eventually they drop the verb in the front, so it would just be careless then, hunter, for the past version. 
angry now bear for the present, which I thought was an interesting way of developing. That's interesting. Yeah, what's weird, what's weirdest about the language is that eventually it settled into one of the rare word orders where the object comes before the subject. Um, It's effectively VOS. Really? Yeah, except that there are these um, tense and aspect particles that intervene between the verb and the object, or rather the object and the subject. They, In fact, they're so intervene that the tense aspect marker and the subject merge Yes, when they're pronouns. Yeah, he... Mm-hmm. The, the, the tense marking is really interesting because, like you said, basically... It can it can attach itself to um, subject pronouns. Uh, it's often sort of by itself as well, and it looks like um, it can attach. It can. It's also in. It can be just encoded on the copula or copula. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, the language is fairly strict in terms of word order. It's prepositional rather than postpositional. Um, in addition to this text, he did part of the McGuffey Reader, which is frankly an easier um, way to account for what's going on. It's a much easier way to start when translating as well. Yes. Because <laughs> it's not like an easy text to just start with. Yeah. Actually, that's how I started my second language. I, well, he also, the guy Gary Shannon, has a list of nice sentences to translate that deal with different situations. But I got bored, so I thought I'll do the McGuffey Reader, which was actually, because it's so repetitive, it was so helpful because I made the verbs slightly more complex in that one. It's very helpful to help me memorize the verbs. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Well, congratulations to you for creating a language even you have a hard time learning. I think a lot of us tend to step back from producing languages even we can't learn ourselves. Well, it it wasn't that hard. It was just I'm not very studious. Oh, yeah. Memorization's a pain in the parts. Yes. So, this is interesting. His, His TAM particles, they have... Sort of one of these, its tense aspect and mood are kind of mixed up in them because there is a past tense particle which can also be a, a perfective, right? And the there's a future tense and there's a present perfect particle, and there's also a particle cha which is just mean. Uh, it just means intent. So I have, I have the intent. I intend to do something, which is which a kind is, of future. Yeah, it's sort of an, one of the the those cases where you have an alternate future. That so is, wait, is there like an intentional future and an unintentional future? Yes. Or? All right. Yeah, basically the intent I read as being an intentional future, while whereas the other is just more general. Maybe predictive future or something. Um, yeah, it's very—I don't know—it's very interesting. Uh, it's not—it's I mean, not morphologically complex, but because of the texts he's chosen to translate, he has to th- solve syntax problems pretty quickly. Yeah, um, and that m- makes it in my opinion, more interesting than... Cause the language was never, in my opinion, completed. There's less than 500 words of vocabulary in the dictionary, um, and it does not look like he... He certainly didn't do all of um, the McGuffey Reader, and I don't know how long he kept working on this after the 30-day window. I don't think like, he worked past the 30-day window. Right. So, considering how long he worked on the language, it's, I think there's a lot more going on here than you might I expect. Think- what I like most about it is the way he went about it. I get tired of people saying, I want to do this and say, blah, blah, blah. I want it to be head marking and I want it to be SVO and I want it to have polypersonal marking, blah, 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 blah. 
which is not that interesting in the grand scheme of things. So you can get it and set it up, but when you get to the more complicated things like the syntax, you have basically nothing, and it's boring. Well, I I, think- I personally advocate just translating crap and seeing what comes from it. Yeah. Well, there's pros and cons to both um, methods, I think. <laughs> right? Because on the one hand, when you're just translating it, you just you just end up naturally running on to various issues and stuff. On the other hand, when you start just translating without actually um, without setting up some parameters in the first place, I have the feeling that that can lead someone to sort of start accidentally relaxing or just choosing sort of the easy way out in a lot of cases. So I think maybe a mixture of both techniques is probably the best way to go. Well, there's there's always this interaction. What's most interesting? Well, what's most interesting? Well, one in- additional interesting thing about, especially the thirty day page, is you get to see his process of refining decisions that happened earlier. So that's what we talked about today. Practicum. What 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 are the consequences of the decisions you make? And here he is dealing with the consequences of things like, oh, I went VOS. <laughs> now what? <laughs> I'm insane. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Um, so, in, in that regard, it's sort of interesting to see how it develops in that way as well. Yeah. Um, what an excellent sentence to have to, in your first weeks of your language. Thinking the thoughts of a lunatic or a dope fiend, I fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> With thoughts like crazy person or drug person, take sleep. Um, past tense, I... <laughs> Yeah, no, I like that. That's that. That's what you get for for um, yeah. translating some some. Was that uh, OVS? VOS. VOS. Uh, speaking yeah, of yeah, yeah. Edgar right. Rice Burroughs, small tangent here. Are either of you in, going to see um, the John Carter movie? What's the John Carter movie? Is it John just Carter called a movie of- called John Carter? It was being called John Carter of Mars, but they're afraid that the of Mars will scare girls away, so they're just calling it John Carter. So you have no idea what the movie's about. I would but say if you want girls. Basically, uh, the the reason I bring it up in this show is they tapped Paul Frommer, I think, to do yes. Barsoomian. So. To, come anyway, up, to sort was... of fill out the Barsoomian language a little bit. Yeah. But um, that's just... That was... Sorry, that was just a small tangent. Let's get back to Chitana and see what else can we say really about Chitana. There's um I do recommend going to the McGuffey Reader stuff because you get a little bit more detail on It's things. nice. I like doing it cuz when you start translating, it forces you to instead of focusing narrowly on one topic, you have to have at least a rough idea of your verb, your nouns. And then you can move on from there. Mm-hmm. Um, they get really repetitive after a while, though. Now, he didn't finish. He only got uh, a short ways on, a certain ways on it. But, like, here, he sa- he has, like, a list of review vocabulary. So that shows some words that he had to invent at some point. Yeah. Much. Um... Yeah. He uses TX, which I think is most excellent. Um, yeah, what? <laughs> Isn't this something you convinced him to do? Maybe. Maybe, yes. so you're is liking it, your own. Is it X is sh and yes. TX is ch? Okay. Yes. Yeah. I have no idea what language I stole that from. Catalan has it. Basque has it. Yeah, I think I think we all realize <laughs> that Basque is the influence here. Uh, <laughs> Well, she could have other um, Iberian languages in there. Yeah. In theory. <laughs> no. Another, um, thing that's <laughs> worth, another thing that's worth looking at in the texts is how the translations are not simply English word for word. Okay. Yeah, I think, I think the flaws is... 
can be a bit confusing and make you think that at first, but once you start to look at it, you can definitely see there's more to it. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Even if you change up the word order, if you are end up translating the English word for word, you have a relax. Anyway, so... Yeah. Um, if you are getting... If you are making a real uh, naturalistic language, you should not be able to translate it 100% word for word. You might uh, be able to come close, but you won't be able to get it word for word. Yeah. If you want to just do that, then you can work for the company that made the... What's the damn... Skyrim? You can yeah. do the dragon language. <laughs> well, the dragon language I'm pretty they sure they're it. known for not doing very good languages. I don't understand. Conlangers cost less than game designers. I don't know why they can't. Well, whatever. Uh, I, how much do conlangers cost? That's that's a, a curious question. I actually asked David J. Peterson how much HBO pays him. He said, I'm not allowed to say that. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I'm sure that they are well paid, but nothing like what I would say they are probably given a contract that's like, you know, we'll pay you $5,000 to do our language. and I'm pretty sure with a fair amount of flattery on one of the boards, they could get someone to do it for free. Yeah, don't ever do that. No, don't well, do it for free. If, if, if an entertainment company wants you to invent a language, get a lawyer. Yeah. yeah get a lawyer or... Or something. Don't give no, in no. to the flattery. Just yeah. definitely get get yourself a lawyer who knows about entertainment law, just just to protect yourself. Yeah, or an agent or something. Even agents can can be tricky. Sure. Uh, just make sure that you. But anyway, I don't know what else to say about Chitana. I didn't have a huge amount of time to stare at it, um, and it's a little bit hard because you have to stare at texts instead of yeah this that's the biggest thing I'm seeing in my difficulty to actually talk about this language is I can't really at a glance figure out things it would have been nice if he did a little bit more synthesis at the end or analysis photosynthesis (laughs) Uh, (laughs) producing energy um never mind yeah, I mean, yeah, shut up yeah. Now. Um, I, I think you're you're um, yeah. getting loopy right now. It's, it's a cute late. language. It's late for Bianca. We can forgive her for getting strange. Uh-huh. Um, I think we're not going to. I think we can probably put the the topic of Shana to rest. Okay. Um, it's cute. Go read it. It's fun. It's good for inspiration. If you know you're you're stuck somewhere, then it might just be worth it to throw out everything you're thinking and just mess around a bit. Yeah. Um, This is... This might end up being a longer episode anyway. I don't think... So I'm not really going to do feedback, but one thing I want to say before we leave, um, I've been having some trouble with keeping up having um the uh the the um conlang at the top of the show and i know it's kind of a trivial thing that i do but i like to have that up there and i don't want to start repeating them so oh um, i have to do the knack one yeah do knack <laughs> now that i'm not sick anymore sorry okay, okay do knack you guys can do it it's fine you okay. guys can submit as many as you want um, I see one, just because I, William, I know you run William short. William was going to do Esperanto, but he didn't end up doing Yes, I'll do it. I'll do it. Just send me hostile email to remind me I'll do it. <laughs> um, I want to see it in Coxi, too. But, Coxi. Um, yeah, that one's easy. I can do that. Um, but I, I, if you guys like having that at the top of the show, and if you want me to showcase your tonlang right at the top of the show, um, I do credit in the show notes, what conlang that comes from and such. So, and even a link if we have one. Yeah, the, that I'm maybe I should start putting links. I haven't been putting links. So, um, 
fame and fortune await you. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, not so much fortune and uh, limited fame, but there's, but you know, we like having that little jag at the top. So I, I'm just saying, uh, email that to conlanger at gmail.com. Please record it yourself because. Remember, I tried doing it reading from IPA, and I did it very badly. So it's Welcome to, to Conlangery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. And you don't have to translate it 100% literally if it's hard for you to work in the positive with your word order or something. But just, you know, we need more of those coming in. And with that, I am going to go to William. Any final words of wisdom? Don't put things that you like in XML before you're sure you have a way to get them out. (laughs) What happened there? Oh, it has to do with one of my dead language websites. I came up with this funky encoding to do. Um, I added a module to MediaWiki, my own personal MediaWiki, to do nice markup of Greek and Latin texts. Um, but no one but me used it. <laughs> so now I'm just going to turn them into LaTeX documents, but un-XMLifying them is, is, a, is a pain. Okay, now Bianca. Uh, house hunting is a pain. God. <laughs> Why do we have to live places? <laughs> and with that, I'm going to say happy conlagery. Thank you for listening to conlagery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. Comments, questions, and suggestions can be sent to conlangery at gmail.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and maybe leave us a five-star review while you're at it. You can also like us at facebook.com slash conlangery, follow us on Twitter at conlangery, or circle us on Google Plus by searching for Con Langery Podcast. Our theme music was created by the band Noel Device. So, just before I light out of here with your outtakes and everything, I'm going to say, remember, I gave you guys some homework. So, if you want to take me up on my little challenge here, I put, I I wrote down in the um, show notes an example of a story that you could use. You don't have to use my story, but I thought it might uh, present a few different situations that where you could uh, where you would have to figure out um, different strategies. I don't know if it's the best example even, but you know. But in any case, uh, I look forward to seeing some of those, and I'll give you. Um, I'm not going to define a specific amount of time to do this, but uh, I will sort of be watching over a couple of weeks, and then when we when we uh, see that we have enough uh, submissions, then we'll um, we'll talk about them. All right, all right. Happy conlang. Is that really linguistic? That's more like English pivology. Ockley. Who on earth said Ockley? I love looking at the entomology dictionary. I I hope you mean etymology dictionary. I do. I always <laughs> say it wrong. Friends of mine in college knew somebody who referred to the state as Organon. <laughs> so they'd always talk about Penortland Organon. <laughs> Although I do sometimes wish to say Canadia. Um, oh, I prefer to talk about Canadistan. Uh, it just sounds more majestic, like Narnia. Just call it the hat. I often hear from Canadians about their many talking animals. <laughs> well, we did have a guy declare his love for George.
That's true. Unfortunately, we needed to stop doing that thing with Spanish. Just because you're taught it in school doesn't mean it's right. Well, you know, you have to you have to think about what the majority of speakers do. So. No, I don't. I was I telling then... William that he was Cyloning, and then telling you what Cyloning was. And oh. Then, Bianca, okay. you have a weird echo with William that doesn't appear on my end. <laughs> this is complicated. I love how I've been here like all day. On Skype, being like, yeah, I'm just doing nothing. And then as soon as we start this, someone's like, hey. And I was like, no, I'm not talking <laughs> to you now. <laughs> he wrote B, D, and G in angle brackets. And it interpreted as a bold tag. That's uh-huh. what happened. <laughs> Let me check iTunes. I can. Check check the UK store because the UK store has different reviews than the American store. Does really? it? We have enough ratings. We have five ratings and uh, apparently that's the, the, the threshold to actually show us the average rating, which is five stars. Well, that's yeah. Nice. It's... <laughs> You know, five that, people think we're great. Well, five I'm people sure. who use iTunes and remembered to go in and say, "Hey, I like this." Did five people under our request decided to give us five stars? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that, and I know that one of them is me, and I'm, I, and you, and you guys may have been two of the others. No, I didn't. Windows Media Player. How many people in China are listening to us? Here's the, the, the list in order um, in number of visits. U.S., U.K., Germany, Sweden, Singapore, Australia, Canada, Norway, France, New Zealand. That's the top ten. Maybe you should just do that as feedback. And let's see. We got Chitana. Chitana. Oh. Why's my internet retarded? <sighs> In <laughs> sorry, just George sighing. It's just so expressive. Okay, sorry. So, what what is your process, Bianca, for house hunting? Uh, we looked at a ton of houses. No, 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 no. I am a single gay man. Do you know how many cocktails I have to buy? The so, hell is stock control? Who needs to stop posting on the forum? Everyone. <laughs> Well, then you wouldn't have a forum. I wasn't too um, too begging too much when I was talking about. Nope, nope. I think that that a periodic reminder is helpful to people. Yeah, I just, I just, (laughs) I keep getting like three, and then those three get used, and then I'm like, I need more. I heard a Swedish guy give a talk about the source code for Apache. This the you know the web server, and he'd always talk about the part of things, but he pronounced part part. Yeah. Part. <laughs> Every time I hear it, I'm just snack, like snack, snack, snack. Okay. And I'm just like, oh. Mm, available online for free. I'm I just mean, trying scary to figure out. Worm, no, but I'm trying to figure out how worm and penis get to dead person, ghost, and scary thing. No, I think it starts with scary thing and then on to bug. Worm. Worms are associated with dead people. Do they have a lot of words that have to deal <laughs> with dead people? So he often wasn't home for several days in a row and I will always remember coming home one winter day and there's a sheet of paper in the middle of the kitchen floor with an arrow on it that just says mouse. <laughs> the trap had caught a mouse but he was too scared to go I've always had this horrible fear of stepping on a mouse, hearing it squish, and then crunch. But there are a couple of episodes that really stick out in my mind. One of the one was when I had to I I had to remove like a half of a rabbit uh, from somebody's yard. And yeah, was, that's fairly gross. It it was. It was one of those things where, like, I, I had, like, the garbage 
bag, and I was trying to get in the garbage bag, and then the weight shifted, and I jumped, and all this. I finally got it into the trash. And then there was another one where living in my apartment uh, in Morgantown, my route, my walking route from between my apartment and the university, somewhere somebody left a dead cat in their front yard. And it was in a place where it's like, in order to give it the wide enough, widest berth that I want to give it, I have to like walk out into the road. So, basically, mm. when I encountered that, I started taking the bus much more often until the cat was gone. Oh... Uh.